0: What's going on, Creation Grounds? I'm your host, Aaron Lloyd, and this is episode 56 of The Creation Grounds. Before I get into our next creative, amazing, gifted, courageous, magical guest, I want to encourage you, yes, you, to like, share, subscribe, tell anybody about this podcast that you think will be genuinely inspired, educated, motivated, and all of that. My next guest is Helene Cavalli. She is, or was, a former teacher of mine at UConn, and she taught me Shakespeare, Molière, taught me how to be bigger in my choices. She also gave me my first professional acting gig in a Michael Bradford play um, at the Parkville Project, and she's just a brilliant artist. In this episode, we talk about her 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 directing career. We talk about her exposure on the West End and in the UK. If you're familiar with that theater, it's like the Broadway. Um, in London that is Broadway in the U.S. She's also worked at the National Theater with Sir Ian McKellen. She's worked with David Oliello. She's just brilliant and she's currently working on a documentary um, and empowering actors any chance she gets. In this episode, she talks about her favorite kinds of actors that she directs. She talks about what it was like building her Lady Anne opposite Sir Ian McKellen. And um, she talks about just her background in anthropology, how she got interested in the arts. It's really a robust conversation that I think you'll enjoy. Um, Make sure to check out her documentary that's coming out slated for 2023 and enjoy this episode with Helene Cavalli. Welcome to another episode of The Creation Grounds. I have a former UConn professor of mine who taught me Shakespeare, Moliere. I was very small, used to doing things very subtly, and she taught me to get out of myself. And and she actually got me my first professional paid acting gig, which I'll forever be grateful for, with the Michael Bradford project called The Parkville Project. Helene Cavalli, what's good? How you doing?
1: Good. I'm honored to be here, Aaron Lloyd.
0: I'm happy to have you.
1: You have always inspired me.
0: That's incredible. Thank you for that. Thank you.
1: (laughs) You have, because you have your feet on the ground. You're such a hard worker. You're quiet and serious. At least you were. I don't know if you are now, but, you know. (laughs) I've I've
0: expanded a little bit. I'm still laid laid back, though. (laughs) That's
1: good. Awesome to be laid back. Such a hard worker. Really committed to the craft. And a musician to boot so you know what's not to love about that and be inspired by by that
0: thank you i'm inspired by you as well um (laughs) i love the accent anytime i hear i feel like i'm gems and jewels are being dropped on me and i think (laughs) you're also multifaceted with directing and and you're also your career as well and you're a brilliant teacher and I, i i love I'm going to tell you about the moment before. You taught me a lot about the moment before. We were doing a, a project, Too Much Memory, and I remember while you were directing that project, you had us do exercises where we understood the relationships between each other. Then you had me do a, a extensive moment before, and I've used that to this day. So Good. your directing style is incredible. I love that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So where where does it begin for you? Where does this interest of the arts come for you, Helene? where did that start?
1: Well, be really shocking if I said to you it was 1971 when I saw the Jackson Five on TV.
0: No, no, Jackson Five is incredible. They, they inspired you, Michael Jackson and Five.
1: Yeah, I wanted to be them, which kind of was weird because I was a little white girl in <laughs> Northern California, yeah, but I thought I'm gonna be a dancer. I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to be in the entertainment business. Because they had a cartoon and they had a whole sort of industry around them, you know? Yeah. And... Um, but I didn't become a dancer. <laughs> which is probably a blessing for the world.
0: <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it. That's dope. So which, which, uh, which program or what song inspired you the most from the Jackson 5?
1: Um, I think it's got to be... You know, I mean, that, that whole era was so amazing and every, there were just so many number ones, but I Want You Back, ABC, Ben, you know, all those, all those songs that just bring tears to my eyes still because, well, what a life he led and yeah. what an inspiration he was to us all
0: and the Jackson 5. So there's a difference between where you desire it, you're kind of dreaming it. What tell me about the moment leading up to like this is what I'm going to do and you actually started taking action towards it. Do you remember that day?
1: Um I remember being in LA. Um I was actually at the Claremont Colleges for a year. I got a, a scholarship to go there for a year and that's when I took my first acting class. Um, and my friend wanted to audition for Getting Out by Marsha Norman. And she was really scared. She didn't want to go. And I was like, You got to go. You got to go. All right. I'll go with you. I said, I'll go with you. And she said, You've got to audition. I said, No, I'm not going to audition. I'll just sit in the auditorium and I'll, put, I'll go with you. So we went. And then, you know, the, the director said, So who's auditioning? And she put her hand up. And I found myself putting my hand up. <laughs> and anyway that was my first role playing the doctor in Marcia Norman's Getting Out it was a big stage and that was it and uh, but then I ended up leaving the Claremont Colleges and going to the London School of Economics where I already had a kind of i have been accepted there and I kind of wanted to get back to Europe so I left the Claremont Colleges and I went there um, and I started getting involved in the Drama Society so that's that sort of period is probably the most influential
0: uh tell me about that that period so you go from claremont san fran you go to london you're you're norwegian right so you have norwegian roots you go back to europe and you have a you start building a career in london what what was that transition like for you and why did you decide to go back to europe
1: well, we had moved to Europe as a family because um, my dad was a Norwegian Siemens minister. He worked in the church, and he was a Norwegian Siemens pastor. And so we went from San Francisco to London to the church there when I was 11. And um, so I didn't really have a choice. But, you know, I, one of the reasons that... I agreed to go as an eleven-year-old, like I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> that my mom promised me that I'd get tap dancing lessons? Because you know, I told you I wanted to be a dancer, right? Mm-hmm. And I specifically wanted to be a tap dancer. And uh, so I said, "All right, I'll go to London. Then I'll get tap dancing lessons." But then I never got the tap dancing lessons. But anyway, um, you know, I digress. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the bait <beating> and switch. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so there I was in London. Um, but that wasn't a bad thing. You know, being being in London as a child, I was taken to every single show that we could afford to go to. And because we didn't have much money, we always sat in the guards, you know, right at the back. And we, we saw everybody on stage and they were like little flies <laughs> buzzing around. <laughs> we couldn't really <laughs> see them. But, you know, it was such an amazing experience because there was so much of it and it was so good that... Um, that really inspired me, and and also I was in the church plays as a child, you know, whether it was San Francisco or or London. Um, so so I'd had that, but but by the time I was at university and at the London School of Economics and doing the drama society, then there was some more serious acting to be had, and we had a budget, and we were able to go to the Edinburgh Festival a couple of years in a row, and then after I finished my anthropology degree. Um, I decided to go to drama school, and my best friend from the London School of Economics, who turned out to be quite a successful filmmaker, she also went to the same drama school as me, and uh, except she was a director and I was an actor. So we both did our postgraduate training there, and then you know the rest. Then I, then I became a professional.
0: So that's incredible. So okay, you leave you leave California, you go to London for economics. And then you, you act and then you get an anthropology degree and then you, you go back to acting again. So you you're very you're very educated. <laughs> very very Actually surprisingly educated. Yeah. But you
1: see, when I was acting at university, it was just like a student run club. Oh. That it wasn't it. my you didn't do classes or anything because all in britain all you did was your degree which was an anthropology degree admittedly at the london school of economics but it was still a good degree yeah. <laughs> it was quite well known <laughs> and then um, yeah so we so i uh, joined the drama society because because we were given a budget you know we were able to actually put on shows in the shaw theater so George Bernard Shaw founded, was one of the founders of the London School of Economics. Wow. With the Fabian Society. They wanted, they wanted a progressive university in London, and that's what it is. So um, we were, you know, performing our, our little plays in the theater built by George Bernard Shaw. That's some history. <laughs> so that's pretty awesome.
0: And so you go from staying in the guardrails, watching these shows, uh, West End, wherever you're seeing in London what what was the london scene like i've i've never experienced the london scene the art scene how long did it take you to see success from a child being mag, being 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 mesmerized by jackson 5 seeing the the london shows to performing on the west end like the broadway of london and what was that transition like for you
1: you know what's great about british the British theatre industry is that it is such an important part of the fabric of society. And um, <clears throat> London at the times at the time, You have to remember, this was like 1986 that I graduated from the London School of Economics and then I went to drama school. So I was out in the world performing as an actor from 87. And it was really gritty. You know, it was... It was the age of Thatcher it was post-punk and it was um, it was just rough uh, which kind of create allows for a lot of creativity anyway in a society that prides itself on being creative so you know the big difference between between my experience of working in the States and my experience of working in the UK is that the States feels very business oriented and the UK just feels like very creative. You know, it's much easier to set up a theater company. If you do a show, you can do it in the fringe, various fringe theaters and the various pubs. At least then you could quite easily, you know, you rent out a pub, doesn't take very much, not the pub, but the, the room above the pub. Mm-hmm. Which is theatre. Um, doesn't you know? Doesn't cost very much. You're going to get reviewed. Doesn't matter how bad your show is, you know. And you can start because people the the Brits are interested in creativity and what people are doing at whatever level. So, you know, Time Out will come and review you, and and you can start inviting agents. And there's not this big sort of business model of having managers and agents and all this gatekeeping that goes on. So, you know, you you call around, you get a few agents, their assistants might come. You just start, you can build a career in a way that's, um, you know, you have much more agency as an actor.
0: So basically move to London. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's a very exciting place to be. And, um, you know, I haven't worked there for since
1: since I moved back to the States in 2002. So, you know, it's been a long time, and and a lot has changed. But there's still that, you know, they honor the eccentric. It's like nobody wants to be the regular guy in Britain. It's like that. Nobody wants that. You want to stand out in Britain, you know. So everybody is, like, trying to, you know – like, think about how they dress that's different and creative and um, you know, how they speak, how they use the language, how they, everything they do. They want to be different. They don't want to be like everybody else. So that leads to the sort of energy of, of uh, yeah, honoring people's creativity. And then, of course, it has this great tradition of the spoken word.
0: And the spoken word, Shakespeare, you did in the National Theater with opposite Ian McKellen. A giant, sir, sir, Ian McKellen. Tell me about building your Lady Anne opposite him and what that was like.
1: Well, that was really super exciting to be working at the National Theater at such a young age. um, And to have the opportunity to come in as a young actor, you know, allowed me to continue to learn from the greats. I mean, you'd go to the cafeteria and... Arthur Miller would be sitting there. What? And, you know, I, I, the great and the good were there internationally,
0: right? Yeah. And, um, and, and so
1: having the honor of being able to work opposite Ian McKellen and Brian Cox, because Brian Cox played King Lear and it was, it was a show that was, it was the first time the national theater had done this. They were doing two Shakespeare's in rep and they were taking them, um, on a globe global tour where everybody was understudying, including Ian McKellen and Brian Cox. Wow. Of course, what happened after a few weeks of rehearsal, we had a five-week rehearsal period to do the two shows. What happened was that, you know, Brian Cox and Ian McKellen thought that they shouldn't be (laughs) understudying because they had quite a lot to do. They were in both shows, right? Yeah. Um, Ian McKellen also played Buckingham and no, sorry – uh, Brian Cox, who was playing King Lear, played Buckingham in Richard III, and Ian McKellen played Kent in um, King Lear. So everybody was doubling up, um, and when and I was brought on after I had done two professional gigs. So I basically, I left drama school. I spent a year on the fringe working for profit share. Basically, you know, you get nothing of the profits because there's no <laughs> profits. Right. That everybody knows, like it's it's going to be a good experience, but you're not going to make any money. So I did that for a year, and then I got my what's called my, equi- my equity card, mm-hmm. and I was able to do two tours, which one of which lasted 13 months and went to the West End, and the other one lasted three months because I was picked up by the National Theatre to join. Okay, so when I started, I joined as the understudy of Lady Anne. Wow. This is a long preamble. Sorry,
0: <laughs> it's, I, I'm interested. This is great. I love it.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I started as the understudy of Lady Anne, and I was as cast, which means I played all these little roles in both the both the um, plays, and I was understudying Cordelia. Um, but of course, I because I'm quite a serious person, you know, I took this role very seriously. So I was acting like I was playing Lady Anne. You know what I mean? I wanted to go to every single rehearsal. I was sitting there, you know. During the run, like doing my warm ups, like I was going on stage. And of course, you have to do that because Mm -hmm. you could go on stage. And I did go on stage quite a lot. Um, And in fact, you know, the first time it happened was at our first destination, which was Tokyo. Wow. And um, you know Claire Higgins, who was playing Elizabeth and Richard III, she got sick, and suddenly twenty minutes before the show, there's a decision that she's not going to go on stage, and there's a knock-on effect, and so everybody moves up, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody shuffles around, and we were all understudying, we we're all frantically trying to get into different costumes, yeah. You know, <laughs> all this, <laughs> um, but that worked out really well for me because um, it got me noticed, basically. And I got a very nice fax from the, from the um, do you remember faxes? Yeah, I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: I was in Tokyo and I got a fax from the casting department at the National Theatre saying, it is highly unusual that we receive such positive reports of a performance. We'd like to congratulate. You know, it's like getting a fax from the Queen.
0: Wow. Um,
1: We'd like to, it wasn't from the Queen, but it was from the casting department.
0: Oh, nice. Um,
1: we'd like to congratulate you on your performance of of Lady Anne and Cordelia and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it was good to be noticed early on. And so I was very much kind of taken under. I got a, I got a wonderful little gift from Ian McKellen. I love it. He, he went out and he bought me a Japanese fan. And he handed me this fan, and on one side was like a little Japanese painting. And on the other side, he had drawn a picture of himself, and it just said, from your fan.
0: That's clever and witty. (laughs) Yeah,
1: he's smart like that. Anyway, so um, basically, I had to understudy for like nine months before there was like a shift of cast and then I was able to take over the role of Lady Anne for, you know, another nine no, it was more than that, like another year. Um the the tour continued, there was a big shift, so Brian Cox left, we dropped King Lear, we continued with Richard the Third. You know, at the National Theater and we also added another play called *Napoleon* Millionaria and more people came on board so the company was kind of changing and growing and then there was there were plans afoot to go to America with Richard III at which point I stepped out because I wanted to move into TV
0: nice nice uh, so before we get into the TV tell, I'm interested in how you built your Lady Anne and is that process the same for every character I'm, I'm curious by people's process um, yes, yeah,
1: sorry I didn't answer your question
0: no um, you, you did that that was uh just talking about what it was like playing Lady Anne and then yeah like what was it like actually building her do you build all your characters oh, the same
1: yeah yeah I mean I had a long time to build her yeah right
0: because
1: I was in, I was, <laughs> I was basically listening to the show for nine months and on stage occasionally and um and so I did have a long time to build her but 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 I, I do do it the same way. And basically, it's the same way that I taught you guys, which is, you know, essentially Stanislavskian root mm-hmm. um, and with Laban and with the Alexander technique and, um, you know, applying applying all the text work that I learned um, through my training. I had sort of a classical British training um, and, you know, it's it's like breaking down the text answering all those really boring questions who you are, (laughs) what the given circumstances are what they say about you, what you say about them you know, all that kind of thing and then um, finding and then listening on stage and taking risks and being humble and you know really being in the moment so it's it's Stanislavski
0: based that's awesome so TV, was that in London or did you come to America for your TV career?
1: Um, I actually did. My whole acting career was in the UK and, um, you know, it, it coincided with me wanting to have children. Mm-hmm. So um, it just meant that touring was more difficult. So I wanted to focus on TV and, you know, there's there's just such a fantastic culture of television and uh, radio and theatre in Britain and <clears throat> to be able to, to participate in that was exciting. Really different technique. Um but um the you know, writing is
0: so good yeah. too. What's that? The writing in British television is, is, a, is yeah. incredible. Really good. Yeah.
1: I mean it comes from you know the BBC was sponsored by the government, sorry. Right. Which I was on. The BBC was sponsored by the government, so there were these things called Play for Today, mm-hmm. and and very much the you know there would be a play on TV made for TV, and this was in the seventies before I was part of the um, before I, I had a career, but um, there was very much this feeling of we're going to go for quality, high quality work, and we're because this is a subscription based. System where um, you pay t- to get a television, you have to have a television box, and there's not a lot of choice. You had BBC One and BBC Two and ITV, which was the independent channel, and the BBC um, was was basically uh, you know you didn't pay very much. It was like twenty five bucks, right? Mm-hmm. But but they controlled what you could see. And um, there wasn't a lot of independent production companies, just this ITV. They had the independent production companies. The BBC was was producing all of its own work. So it was very much, the public are going to get their meat and their two-veg and their dessert. And we're going to tell them what good theater, what good TV is. You know what I mean? And so it was very top-down, but actually the quality was extraordinarily high. And so, you know, with with Thatcherism and with the sort of Rise of capitalism. There was more sense of no, we've got to open this up to the open market and see what comes out. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of the root of it. That there was this like, so everybody was getting access to very high quality writing and that kind of thing, um, as determined by the people who ran the BBC. Um, but there's still that kind of still built on, on yeah, not only creativity but high quality, you know. Yeah. And, and high quality can also mean Um, risk-taking, surprising, you know, if you, if you, they're they're just, they're a country of nutters, basically, crazy people.
0: (laughs) That's awesome. I have to
1: turn all my devices off, I'm sorry, they're pinging. It's all good. I'm so amazed that I have electricity, quite honestly. I'm
0: I'm impressed you you were able to make it happen, like with the Wi-Fi and all that. Oh so yeah,
1: the, everything was off, and um, and now it's now it's working. So, um,
0: what what prompted? So you you have your television career in London. What prompted the shift to teaching and directing? What prompted that interest?
1: Yeah. So, um, I had always done a lot of teaching that was affiliated to the shows that I was in. So. Um, I mean, the first thing I did when I left drama school was I started teaching workshops to kids. And that's, that's, that's what a lot of young actors do. And it's a really great way to learn. Um, and then when I joined a company like the National Theatre, they have an education department, right? And so there's, like, opportunities within that to, to engage in, in real-world um, and supported workshops, that are specifically designed around the productions. And so I did that. And then when I wasn't, uh, when I got pregnant, for instance, and, and I couldn't work anymore because I had this big belly, <laughs> I, you know, some friends of mine and I got together and we, we created this um, organization and went around to usually private schools because they would pay us to come and give workshops on Moliere or whatever. <laughs> and, and so when it came to, you know, working at UConn, I had that experience for a number of years, and, but it was very different different to do it in a, an academic environment in the U.S. So, you know, unfortunately, you guys were my guinea pigs.
0: <laughs> I'm grateful for it. I learned a lot. I had, I had zero training prior to UConn, so I was a sponge, which is why I was so serious. So, I was like, I have four years here. And then after this, it's probably going to be beans for a while. So I want to just do my craft as much as possible and be the best actor I can be. Um, so yeah,
1: well, that's good advice for young actors, you know, just to do that because I think it's it's easy to to think that oh, you know, these teachers are out of touch or something. But I but I think I
0: know from when I had my training, it's like you appreciate when you leave your yeah.
1: teachers.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, that's awesome. So teaching, directing, what 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 is one foundational lesson you would like any actor taught by you to walk away from? So my class, my cohort, for example, or any anybody that's come after me after our class, what what do you want actors to walk away from after being taught by you? What do you think is a foundational piece that is super important?
1: Yeah, you know, there's so many things. Just one is really hard. I guess if I had to say one, I would say continue to take risks um and find the comfort in being uncomfortable but you know i think collaborate with other people is a really big one yeah another one another really big one so i mean can i give you a list yeah okay so if you collaborate with other people and you learn to be a collaborator like a real collaborative collaborator a true collaborator you are going to just grow so much, and you're going to build your networks, and you're going to be doing work before you even can think about it, you know, and and so, like, continue to collaborate. Um, I'd say have faith in your abilities as an actor, and in your vision, and in, you know, what it is that you believe in, have faith in it, but also remind yourself that within the context of um performance this is a team sport you know and so so don't forget to be humble and you'll learn a lot like that basically stay curious because this is a lifelong learning experience that can be so rewarding because because the arts the acting touches on so many different aspects of the arts and so I never really consider acting just acting. I consider it writing and directing and and uh, you know other things as well. So it's it's just like have have a broad view and have a long view because you're you're going to be doing this your whole life if you're committed to it, mm-hmm. and you're going to be learning. And it might not take the form that you think it should take, or it might not take the form that you expect it to take. But if you have the right attitude, um, it's going to be a really good life because you're doing what you're passionate about. Um, I love yeah, that. Yeah. So those, those are some things.
0: I love the curiosity and the, the humble part. That that's and uh, I remember in a, uh, a class we were studying. I think it was a Shaw piece, and like you talked about, how you love researching. Uh, and I'm, I'm similar. I like when I get a, a role or I like researching the time period. What was the top? What was the top song during that time? What were they dressed like? All that. I, I love that kind of stuff. Um, but I digress. Um, what do you love most no, about...
1: It's interesting. I want to hear more.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love that stuff. I, I, I it's like you remember for too much memory. And I, I love what you did for the Parkville project, too, because you had um, the main actress and the person who was playing her father in the past like write letters to each other that none of the other cast met i, I love that kind of st- and then it just it adds that 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 extra layer and just just the way it all comes together and it's different every night it's exhilarating and just the research of of um this time period and then even the ipa of like how they how they speak and where that comes from and i, I love i love all that stuff total yeah, nerd yeah. about that stuff you know
1: It's really important to root performance in in what is sensual. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we just just take it to to the fundamentals of what you can smell, taste, hear, see, you know, touch, it just places you so much in the present and makes you understand that this is a three-dimensional human being who's got to do all those things. And so if you get two actors writing letters to each other that nobody else sees... Or or whatever—it's like a secret, exciting, you know, special project that you can do, and you can make it your own, and you can go wild with it. And it starts engaging you as an actor, and um, mm-hmm. and that's when you can start really creating original portrayals.
0: Yeah,
1: it's got to be fun. You've got to have the play in there.
0: Absolutely. And where did you learn that? How do you get interested in directing? And where would you learn that uh, kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I you know. I never really thought of myself as a director until the opportunity arose, and I have to thank Gary English for that because he put his faith in me, you know, he, he allowed me to do that, and um, it was like, wow, this is better than acting because you get to act every role You know, in a way. <laughs> you're, involved, you're engaging yourself in all these different characters and the overall arc and you get to work with designers yeah. you know that period before in pre-production well well first of all even before that when you're just conceiving of what what the concept of your production is going to be and all that research that you know and, and you have this open you know you have this blank page and you can do whatever you want with this um, and to just start doing the research and thinking about well what what does this mean today you know that's really important to me like I'm not interested in, in recreating the past or in, in an honest way or whatever. I'm just like, what does this tell us about today? And how does it reflect what's going on today? And, um, you know, re, like rethinking classics in that way is always very exciting because you've already got like the fundamental of a fantastic piece that you can then rethink, you know, or or like like we did with the Parkville project, you know, just getting really involved in a local community and understanding that there are generations of people who stand on each other's shoulders that they don't even know about, you know, but they're all kind of going through the same process. Anyway, um, so there's a research, and then working with designers is awesome. Costume designers, the way they think, it's so different you know, it's really exciting to kind of bring them on and really engage them and, and scenic and lighting and getting everybody working together and composition and stage management and then and you've done so much work by the time the actors come along and and you have such a good foundation that by the time the actors come along and then you're really starting to understand the text and how it all fits into your concept, it's just the most exhilarating thing. Yeah, but the terrifying thing, of course, is that it's live.
0: Right. (laughs) Right.
1: And then things like a pandemic happen.
0: I know that's that's the worst. It's coming back though, September.
1: What did you say?
0: It's coming back in September, theater. I don't know if it's the same in Connecticut, but Broadway's coming back pretty soon. Yeah,
1: that's, that's really really exciting. You know, I mean, we've we've we've. We've got to continue to gather on some level because to me it's, it's as much as multidisciplinary theater, multimedia theater is really, really amazing. To me, theater is that combination of the actor, the text, and the audience coming together in a space. You know? That's where the magic happens. That's when you can't recreate it. It's why I don't like filming live theater because it's not film, watching films of live theater it just isn't theater.
0: Yeah, it's true. You
1: have to be there.
0: What are your favorite uh, favorite actors to direct? What are some of the qualities that you're... the actors that you really like directing? What do they have?
1: You know, they have a lot of these qualities that I've spoken about before. The, the desire to bring ideas into the room, the desire to take risks, um, the... the the curiosity the humility the desire to collaborate i mean it's all kind of the same stuff it's like um people who say yes people who are respectful of their fellow actors and the process um i'll work with those actors again yeah you know the ones that come along and are are not in that open space and not in that place where they're going to like run with an idea or come in with any ideas, they they're they're not really gonna generate much energy in the room. Um, so, I mean, it obviously depends on the on what we're what you're working on. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you if you've got somebody who's doing a star turn and they're the thing, the main focus of the show, then you know you you know, for whatever reason, that's, that's, that's something that is really anchoring the piece, then, you know, whatever they're bringing must be pretty remarkable. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but yeah, ideally uh, gathering people who are on the same page, who really want to be there and really want to learn and want to create and have fun is, um,
0: the most important thing because it's too hard. otherwise. It's I
1: mean it's very hard what we do.
0: It is. It's meant to be enjoyed. You
1: know? um. <laughs> yeah. And and ultimately it works best when, when it's simple and and the principles are simple and and that simplicity comes from, you know, a desire to risk and play and be respectful. And if there's respect then, then there can be elasticity in the room in terms of what's permissible and how far we go because we know that there's gonna be everybody's gonna have a chance and you know. I don't think the room is democratic, though. You know, I mean, I do think that there is a hierarchy in theatre, which um, some people might think is, might really disagree with me on, but I think ultimately somebody's got to take responsibility for the vision. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, it's not to say that you can't devise and you can't do those things, because there's, it, it's possible to have that, um, you know, a democratic environment. But at a certain point, somebody's got to take responsibility to make sure that the thing functions and and that, you know, your goals are met or whatever, I think. Yeah. It takes longer, I guess.
0: And tell me about Baited Breath. I imagine that, you know, that started from the UK where you're kind of devising these things and creating things in fringe. What led to the Baited Breath, your theater company?
1: Well, I actually did the Lincoln Center Theater Director's Lab, which I recommend... To anybody who is interested in directing, it's free. And it's a three week intensive course at the Lincoln Center with the most incredible um, mentors and teachers and a group of 60 directors. Um, So when I did that, you know, I was one of the oldest people there and I brought Michael Bradford along because he was a playwright, who was a playwright, because the theme was. you know, the director and the playwright. And so everybody had to have, you know, was was invited to bring a playwright. And so he came. Um, and that, you know, meeting a lot of young directors, I say young, like literally young, because I was old, <laughs> uh, was was interesting, because a lot of them had their own production companies, you know, mm-hmm. they had their own companies. And, um, and I was just at a point in my life when I was kind of, still exploring directing just within Yukon and I thought okay yeah I, just, I need to just make a new company and that's when I approached five other people and there were six of us in that company including Michael Bradford and Greg Webster and Paul Spirito and you know, and, and we made this company
0: Nice and what what do you believe today that you did not believe ten years ago and why? What what shifted that change in belief?
1: Um, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was seeing how the Me Too movement could change the um, the culture within uh, the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Because you know how I talked about gatekeepers, and it's 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 still a very closed world is still very hard to get into it. But the fact that all these women started speaking out about something that was really kind of a big part of the, the uh, kind of, I don't know the secret culture. It wasn't that secret, but the culture of, of the industry, um, which was just basically a way of, Having white men have a lot of power, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I think, had a ripple effect, not just on women, but on everybody. Um, so, so that these old white guys, you know, they were held more to more account, and it's less controlled. and And all the social movements that have happened since then, including, you know, Black Lives Matter and and other just just. Progressive um, protests have helped, and then the pandemic as well have just, and the digital age. I mean, all these all these things have have allowed there to be a massive shift in how things are done, and um, and so the rules aren't the same. So I, I guess I'm really happy for you guys, and I'm proud of the younger generation for sort of taking this on. I encourage them to be to keep empowering themselves because you guys have achieved a lot and you have a lot to say and what you say is really important. So um, I guess that's you know all all that's kind of was without outside of me without that these are we're talking about massive social movements. But um, I'm glad they happen. So so that's the change that I think has been very exciting to see, and I hope that pandemic hasn't destroyed you know i mean it's already destroyed a lot of small companies and all that kind of thing but i do believe in the our human need to communicate and share stories and gather around the campfire or whatever the campfire means to us um and make art like people are going to make art Mm
0: -hmm.
1: in spite of anything because we have a need to do it
0: one hundred percent. I agree. It's been going on since the beginning of since cavemen writing on yeah. writing on walls. So I agree with that. Um, and recently, you told me that you're 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 doing documentaries. So I'm curious about that and what you're currently working on. Does your background in anthropology kind of fuel that? And where does the interest for documentaries come from?
1: Well, you know, I have a kind of weird philosophy in that I kind of wait things for things to appear. To me, I mean, I don't mean like I'm spiritually uh, like waiting for fairies to come and give me a message <laughs> or anything, but I'm, but I kind of, I I decided to free up and go back and free up myself basically, mm. and um, so I left the academic environment of teaching, and because I wanted to to get back to freelance basically and have the opportunity to create. And um, because working within an academic institution is awesome and there are lots of opportunities to create, but it can be limiting. Mm. So so I sat there thinking, okay, I'm just going to wait and something will, will appear that's right. And I started exploring lots of different things, right? Things that interested me and I just like waited to see what happened i actually did a dance class
0: nice finally (laughs) since 11 you finally took it
1: awesome woman who was teaching raw movement um anyway so you didn't really have to be a dancer because it was all raw movement but um so i did that and 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 then something happened that actually arose from the last show that I did at UConn called If We Were Birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was through my collaboration with the digital media um, department, a woman called Heju Kim, who said, the story that you told at the first um, rehearsal was so powerful, I want to make an animated film about it. Wow. Can you tell me more? And I said, well, I don't know anymore. And the story I told her was that I was dedicating that production of If We Were Birds to these four little cousins of mine who were shot by their mother in 1945 when she was just towards the end of of World War II. This was in Berlin as the Russians were coming through because there was a systematic terror of rape going on. And she was so terrified that she shot her four daughters, her mom and herself. Now I was told that story when I was 11 years old and then nobody talked about it again. But in 2019, when I was directing If We Were Birds and it was based on a Greek tragedy Mm -hmm. from Ovid's Philomela myth, it it had a number of similar, there were a number of like overlaps that story, which follows a woman who weaves a tapestry because um, she's been raped. There was a connection between my story that I'd heard at age 11, an object that existed in my parents' house, which was a loom, that was made by the husband of the woman who shot the kids. Basically, they all kind of came together, mm-hmm. and, and he drew Kim. And so I decided that I wanted to make a documentary investigating what happened on April 25th, 1945, when Honey Ahlweld shot her four daughters, her mom mom and herself, through the eyes of her artist husband, who made this really beautiful little loom with his four daughters. And he wrote their names on it in 1944. And this loom was in my family, and I never really looked at it and never noticed there were four names. and And so I have this kind of magical, artistic... Piece, this little crafted loom, and I'm now investigating his art and talking to his fifth and sixth daughters who live in Los Angeles and his 100-year-old second wife, who who lived in the same apartment where these girls shot themselves, and so I'm just like getting the context, I'm telling the story, the sort of feminist story of World War II at this particular point in time in this particular neighborhood of Berlin. Um, just just exploring a woman's the, the woman's experience of war which isn't really told very often you know so and why there were so many rapes and all that kind of thing but it's, it's, it's yeah that's that's what it is it's called the loom
0: the loom and, What what is a loom because I've never heard heard that
1: okay well a loom is what you weave a
0: tapestry on okay and it's It's this traditional, like, it's
1: a structure uh, that stands up. And it actually is a functioning loom that he made with his four daughters in 1944. And there's a little tapestry on there. So in the Philomela myth, you know, Philomela weaves this tapestry to tell the story of what happened with the rapes. And it leads to this massive revenge tragedy where everybody gets killed. You know, they end up killing a baby, feeding it to the husband. He goes mad. The gods turn them into birds. You know, it's this fantastic story of uh, – it's a revenge tragedy. And um, in this instance, I saw this loom that would have been in our possession with this little tapestry made by these four little girls – in 1944 and I wondered if he if they had actually been killed in 1944 because I didn't know when they died mm-hmm. and um, and I wondered if he was if he knew anything about the Philomela myth and if he had actually decided to make this tapestry in honor of his four dead daughters and so that, that's sort of part of the in- inquiry it's like what happened
0: and do you do you have any idea when this is going to be released or, or a website that people can... It's going to
1: be released in 2023. Mm-hmm. I have a team of people. I have a co-director who's called Adam Briscoe, who's a documentary filmmaker. I have this fabulous cinematographer called Tanya Bindra. Um, and I have a German researcher. I have this big team of people. I have an animator. And we are currently making a teaser and grant writing... And if you want to give me a million dollars, Aaron, I won't say no, (laughs) (laughs) because it's going to cost a lot of money. But in the meantime, we're all doing it for free and we're all very motivated. You know, we're just passionate about the story and we're finding all this art that this guy made in Los Angeles because he was actually sponsored by my grandparents to come from Germany after his wife died to America, and he started a new life, he was a stained glass maker, and he built stained glass in Los Angeles, and it's all over the city, and I'm discovering it, and learning about him and his dead children depicted in these stained glass, you know, windows, so it's just,
0: it's really about trauma, this film, anyway... I, I could talk about this all day. I'm it's, sorry you got me ranting. It's, it's super interesting. And how, how do people donate? Is there a website? How do people fi- – are you guys going to – I mean, obviously, this might be uh, background stuff. But like Netflix, all the like, streaming services, or how are you guys planning on distributing it?
1: Yeah, so the website is theloomfilm.com. We are building it. We are working with Rich Holland, who you may remember. He was the guy who designed the Baited Breath website, and he's an artist in his own right, and he runs these things, these places called Free Centers. Mm -hmm. He started this whole network of free centers, particularly for um, African-American neighborhoods to, to allow assets to be exchanged for, to allow access to assets, basically. So everything is free and they are our fiscal sponsor. So if you want, you know, to make a donation, you can get, it's a tax it's tax deductible, and you can do it through the website or through FreeCenter. And um, we hope that this is, we anticipate this will be a German co-production. And we're looking at, you know, our target is a kind of PBS POV, but it's going to be—it's going to be a beautiful film. It's going to be very artistic, the mm. film, and it's going to be quite elegiac. And so it'll be a different kind of historical documentary because it's told through the eyes of an artist. And it's—and it's really like, you know, stressing the importance of the power of storytelling through art. I love it. Which is what we do.
0: And I ask all my guests this. When you think of the word creative, who comes to mind for you and why?
1: Apart from Aaron Lloyd?
0: Oh, well, thank you. I'm flattered. (laughs) (laughs) I appreciate it.
1: Well, you know, I started thinking about when you... I I start thinking about who is creative, you know? And, like, people who inspire me who are creative. And I think about people like... um, do you know somebody called Miranda July? No. She is she is a filmmaker, writer, performance artist. Check her out. She's awesome. Or somebody like, you know, Ava DuVernay. Love her. Yeah, so important. Or Yoko Ono. Like, different period, but her work was amazing, is amazing, as a performance artist and musician. Mm-hmm. Or um, thinking about, like, people, actors like David Oyelowo, beautiful actor oh my god and what and i had the privilege of working with him
0: when what?
1: um in england and he actually lived in the same town as me we lived outside of london in a place called brighton mm-hmm. so before he moved to the states um he lived in brighton and so we were working on a film together and um we would take the train home together so i had i had the opportunity to sort of get to know him a bit that's beautiful Yeah, he is just really inspiring. Um, So is Mark Rylance as an actor, another very creative actor who is super passionate. And then there's people like, you know, Devendra Banhart. Do you know him? No. Musician, folk singer, artist. You know, people who kind of do more than one thing, like Donald Glover.
0: Love him. Inspiration.
1: Um, You know, or, or somebody like Charlie Kaufman, who really takes a lot of risks as a writer. Um, being John Malkovich adaptation you know just like really exciting um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and the director of that film Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind Michelle Gondry
0: mm-hmm. who's
1: friend um, really worth looking at because he brings a very theatrical perspective to film so you know when I think of creative I think of those people who um, they're 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 not just actors. They're not just directors. They're screenwriters. They're doing all kinds of things. They're they're musicians. They're you know like and and I think that your generation is more and more allowing that to be acceptable, if not necessary.
0: Yeah, I love I love Mark Rylance. I, I still remember seeing Jerusalem, and it's probably one of the most powerful performances I've ever seen. I, I and I've been following him ever since I saw his Richard the Third. He, he's, he's incredible. I love him. Um, yeah,
1: and he's also a very nice guy. You know, and, and he actually ran the Globe Theater for a long time. Mm-hmm. He is... Talk about humility. Talk about the sort of respect for the space and the energy and the room and the... You know, all those things that are intangible. Mm-hmm. Like, he has that. Just, you know... Check him
0: out. He's he's a really lovely guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, awesome. He's always in New York. Yeah, he's 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 kind of transitioned into film, but he he's I definitely follow him since in Jerusalem. Um, but yeah. I could, this has been an awesome conversation, and I love uh, chopping up about arts and and all this kind of stuff. And I learned things about you I didn't know before. Um, how do people contact you? How do they? Do, you already said how they donate. Obviously, look out for the Loom Project. And, uh, how do people contact you if they want to, if you're a freelance director or an, an actress, you still want to act. How do people connect with you?
1: Um, through helenekavala.com. It's a difficult name, but H E L E N E K V for Victor, A L com.
0: Helene Kavala. It's been a pleasure.
1: <laughs> oh, thank you. I'm sad to say goodbye.